Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caprola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 4th through Saturday, the 6th of November, feature guest conductor Marek Janowski and concertmaster Robert Chen. The program includes the Hebrides Overture, Fingal's Cave by Mendelssohn, Max Bruch's Violin Concerto No. 1, and Mozart's Jupiter, the Symphony No. 41. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Max Bruch Violin Concerto No. 1, the performance time around 25 minutes. Although he was born five years after Johannes Brahms, Max Bruch hit his stride much sooner. At 11, he was writing chamber music. In 1852, at the age of 14, he tossed off his first symphony. Brahms was 42 when he finished his after a nearly a quarter century of intermittent work. Brooks' first violin concerto was begun in 1864 and first performed to considerable acclaim in 1868 before a German requiem put Brahms on the map and more than a decade before his own celebrated violin concerto. The downside of early success is the waning star. Several composers, some as great as Felix Mendelssohn, are regularly accused of failing to sustain their promise. This is a standard line in the Bruch literature, too, along with that even more worrisome one about a one-hit reputation. Neither assertion is entirely accurate or fair, although Bruch's G minor concerto has always been immensely popular, far more so than his other two, and more frequently performed than Col Nidre for cello and orchestra or the Scottish Fantasy for violin and orchestra. The irony of Brooks' career, particularly in light of the current admiration for art that is, above all, accessible, is that by writing music to please the audience of his day, Brooke lost the interest of succeeding generations. The G minor violin concerto, however, has withstood time, and it makes a most persuasive case for the composer. Soloists keep concertos before the public, and violinists have always loved to play this piece. Bruch studied violin for several years, and he wrote for the instrument with enormous affection and skill. When his publisher once suggested he try a work for cello and orchestra, Bruch replied, I have more important things to do than write stupid cello concertos. Eugene Albert asked for a piano concerto in 1886. Bruch fired back, me? Write a piano concerto? That's the limit. And Bruch eventually wrote beautifully for cello with orchestra, though he never did compose a piano concerto. Bruch had difficulty writing this concerto, his first major work. There was even a public performance of a preliminary version, but Bruch was dissatisfied. The celebrated violinist Josef Joachim offered important suggestions. He would later play the same role in the creation of Brahms' concerto, and Bruch was smart enough to take his advice. When the concerto was presented in its final form in 1868, Joachim was the soloist. Bruch also dedicated the score to him. Bruch planned to call the concerto a fantasy, which helps to explain the disposition of the three movements. The first is a prelude in title and mood, rather than the weightiest movement of the work. Even though the violinist works as hard as in any of the great virtuoso concertos, and the dialogue between the solo and orchestra is heated and extensive, the tone is anticipatory. When, 
Without a pause, we reach the slow movement, we find the heart of the concerto, a rich, wonderfully lyrical expanse of music that shows Bruch at his best and offers melodies custom-made for the violin. The finale begins in quiet suspense, broken by the entrance of the violin with a hearty dance tune and more fireworks. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Max Bruch's Violin Concerto No. 1. And now on to Mozart's Symphony No. 41, the Jupiter Symphony, the performance time around 34 minutes. Ironically, it's Mozart's last three symphonies rather than the famous Requiem that remain the mystery of his final years. Almost as soon as Mozart died, romantic myth attached itself to the unfinished pages of the Requiem left scattered on his bed. A host of questions. Who commissioned the work? Who finished it? Was Mozart poisoned? It inspired painters, novelists, biographers, librettists, playwrights, and screenwriters to heights of imaginative recreation. We now know those answers. The Requiem is unfinished, but not unexplained. The final symphonies, on the other hand, number 39 in E-flat, the great G minor, number 40, and the Jupiter, number 41, continue to beg more questions than we can answer. Even what was once the most provocative fact about these works, that Mozart never heard them, is now doubtful. We no longer believe that Mozart wrote these three great symphonies for the drawer alone. That goes against everything we know of his working methods. But we don't know what orchestra or occasion he had in mind. Apparently, a series of subscription concerts was planned for the summer of 1788 when Mozart entered the three symphonies in his catalog. But there's no evidence that the performances took place. It's likely that the works were conceived as a trilogy with publication in mind. Symphonies often were printed in groups of three, but they weren't published during Mozart's lifetime. Did Mozart ever hear them? Even if the projected subscription series of 1788 never took place, Mozart did tour Germany the following year, conducting concerts for which we have only sketchy details. A symphony, for example, was advertised for the program at the Leipzig Gewandhaus on May 12th. And back home in Vienna, no less a musical big shot than Antonio Salieri conducted concerts on April 16th and 17th, 1791, featuring a grand symphony by Mozart. The fact that the G minor symphony exists in two versions, with and without clarinets, argues that Mozart revised the score for a specific performance. Mozart, who didn't expect the C major symphony performed at these concerts to be his last, never called it the Jupiter. According to an entry in the British publisher Vincent Novello's diary, Mozart's son, Franz Zava, reported that the London impresario Johann Peter Solomon gave the work its nickname after the most powerful of the Roman gods. The title first appeared in print for a performance in Edinburgh on October 20, 1819. When Muzio Clementi's popular piano arrangement of the score was published in 1823, the cover announced Mozart's celebrated symphony, The Jupiter, and depicted the god himself regally sitting atop billowing clouds. In Germany, well into the 19th century, it was simply known as the symphony with the fugue at the end, just as Mozart's Prague was called the symphony without a minuet. 
the great C major symphony was celebrated long before Clementi introduced its splendors to the parlors of countless eager amateur pianists. Many surely struggled with the finale, which juggles more ideas at a fast speed than the average two hands can coordinate. Josef Haydn, who owed the existence of his last 12 and most popular symphonies to the same Solomon who named this symphony, knew the work and admired it excessively. The nickname itself suggests that the Jupiter Symphony was accepted as the summit of instrumental music within a few years of its composition. At least until 1808, when Beethoven premiered his Fifth Symphony in the same key, it could safely be mentioned as the C major symphony, without danger of confusion. Beethoven's begins in C minor and only ends in the major. Schumann, who wrote at length about many pieces he admired, thought it wholly above discussion, like the works of Shakespeare. Mendelssohn and Wagner both modeled youthful symphonies on it. Solomon's nickname probably was suggested by the majesty and nobility of the first movement, which includes the brilliant sound of trumpets and drums and features stately dotted rhythms in the opening measures. C major was the traditional key for ceremonial music in the 18th century. But the movement, cast in conventional sonata form, is also light and playful. Mozart starts the recapitulation in the wrong key, the subdominant, as an inside joke and quotes the music of a light-hearted aria he recently had written to a text presumably by Lorenzo da Ponte. You are a bit innocent, my dear Pompeo, a bass sings to an inexperienced lover. Go study the ways of the world. Like Don Giovanni, this movement is drama giocoso, the quintessentially Mozartian mixture of the serious and the comic. The Andante, with muted strings to counter the noonday brilliance of the opening movement, exposes the darkness that often is at the heart of Mozart's music. This is a world of poignant contemplation, yearning, and distress. It's as heart-wrenching as Pamina's great aria from the magic flute, and even more remarkable for being in a major key. The minuet and trio are unusually rich and complicated both musically and emotionally for all their plain traditional dance forms. The finale, which includes a famous fugue at the end, is as celebrated as any single movement of 18th century music. It begins, innocently enough, with an innocuous do-re-fa-mi theme and turns it into a tour de force of classical counterpoint. Five themes are presented, developed, and restated, then at the end in the great miraculous coda, they're brought together in various combinations and sometimes upside down in a dazzling display of perfect counterpoint. With these two minutes of music, Mozart shifts the center of gravity from the beginning of the symphony to the end, anticipating Beethoven, Brahms, and countless other composers who owe him so much else in this field. Mozart cannot have known that this work would bring his own symphonic career to an end, but he couldn't have found a more spectacular and fitting way to crown his achievements and at the same time to point the way to the future. Program notes by Philip Huscher on The Jupiter, Mozart's Symphony No. 41. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.